Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Ham and Egg News series, posted March 1st, 2021, titled Ken Ham vs. William Lane Craig. Welcome to Apologia, and another edition of Ham and Egg News, where we react to Ken Ham reacting to things. Though today's episode might better be called Ham and Craig News, as in Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis, versus William Lane Craig of Reasonable Faith. Both men have responded to me personally in the past, Ham dismissing my objections to him interjecting himself and his curriculum into the educational system of my province as a mere disgruntled father, and Craig dismissing my resurrection examination as, well, we'll get to that soon enough. But in what may be a strange case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend three-way standoff, this year has brought a feud between these two Christian apologists. I recently posted on Facebook about two individuals who are well-known within Christian circles, popular apologist William Lane Craig and creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer. You may recall that Phil Vischer was our guest here at Ham and Egg News to discuss this latter feud. Well, he's not known for his conservative leaning when it comes to Christianity. Ouch! That's, that's, ooh, that's, that's problematic right there. I've always said I'm a conservative Christian, so there, there he goes. He's throwing me under the ark before we even start. <laughs> William Lane Craig, a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, is held up by many as a great apologist for Christianity. But the fact is, he represents one of the major problems with much of the church and most Christian institutions. Some harsh words. See his pseudo-intellectual arrogance that mocks God and his word. Now, here, Ken Ham launches an attack, not on my view, but on me personally. He questions my personal character. I know how that feels, Dr. Craig. This one time? A Christian apologist was supposed to be talking about my views on the resurrection, but he spent a bunch of time attempting to disparage my character instead. Man who has responded goes by Paul Logia. The intellectual life of this person was just allowed. Well, it was it was stagnant. It was it, he was had a brain dead Christian faith. I'm glad we agree that such tactics are to be avoided and have no bearing on what's true. See his pseudo intellectual. I think that is just easy to refute. Uh, I publish with the finest academic presses in the world and in peer-reviewed professional journals. There's nothing pseudo-intellectual about the scholarship that I'm engaged in. Arrogance. This is a very, very serious personal uh, charge to make against another uh, Christian uh, because that's a terrible sin. And 
character fault. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if I thought for a moment that I were arrogant and that God was opposing me, I would step down from Christian ministry. That mocks God and his word. The idea that I would mock God and his word is just an astonishing uh, personal attack and instead exalts the word of fallible sinful man above god's holy infallible word he's destructive to the church and will have to give account to god for his blatant compromise of god's word and for leading many astray i want to exalt god and to submit to the truth of scripture uh, and my struggles with the historical adam are precisely an attempt to do that so i think that this sort of personal character assassination is quite uncalled for. This whole thing started when Dr. Craig was being interviewed on Remnant Radio and was asked what degree of evolution he allows for in the Genesis account. I think that it's perfectly possible scientifically that Adam and Eve were de novo creations out of animate materials rather than out of pre-existing hominins. But given that we're dealing here with a mytho-history, I'm not at all confident that that's true. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I think that the creation of Eve out of Adam's rib is almost undeniably figurative language. Uh, rather than describing an actual surgery that took place with this rib floating in the air and then being formed into a woman. And even God's creating Adam out of dirt and then blowing into his nose, again, seems to be very, very anthropomorphic and figurative. So I think that the narratives of Genesis 1, given their genre, leave it open as to how God created Adam and Eve, and that makes it a scientific question. Craig claims a genre analysis indicates that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are not literal and historical. That's totally his opinion, based on nothing in the Bible. In fact, quite the contrary. It is based upon a detailed, painstaking analysis of the text of Genesis 1 to 11, while bracketing modern science so that science does not dictate uh, your analysis of the type of literature that Genesis 1 to 11 is. And to claim that chapters 1 to 11 are not literal and historical is comparable to what virtually everyone says, for example, about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not literal and historical when it talks about a beast or a, a dragon sweeping the stars from the sky. These, this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, which is filled with symbolic and figurative language. Uh, and so I'm simply suggesting that uh, these chapters are also not of a type of literature that is meant to be read in this sort of literalistic way. If he had never heard of evolution, he would never think such a thing about the Genesis text. That's demonstrably wrong, because the Church Fathers, Oregon and Augustine, had never heard of biological evolution or Darwin, and yet they advocated a figurative reading of the text. His main thrust is to compromise the pagan religion of evolution slash millions of years with God's word. He is helping atheists undermine the word of God and capture the minds of generations of people. I have met so many people who, on the contrary, have been put off from Christian belief 
and have even become atheistic because they couldn't bring themselves to believe that the world was created in six consecutive 24-hour days somewhere around 10,000 years ago. While that was by no means the whole story of how I came to stop believing in the Christian God, that exact thing was the first step on the journey. So those kinds of people, I am providing help to, to enable them to embrace Christian faith without committing what they would think to be intellectual suicide. Excellent description. Years ago, Josh, I saw a young earth creationist poster that was very telling. It had a picture of two castles on two islands, and the people in the castles were shooting cannons at each other fighting. And the one castle was Christianity, and the other castle was labeled something like secularism or atheism. And the foundation of the uh, one was called evolution, uh, and the other one, the foundation of Christianity, was creation. Do you know who created that poster, Dr. Craig? It was Ken Ham. The castle diagrams, many people who've heard me speak know I've been using them since the 70s. And it's really showing the battle between two foundations, God's word, man's word, and that the secular humanists fire at the foundation of God's word, and many Christians help undermine God's word by compromising Genesis. It is such a misunderstanding of theological priorities to think that Christianity is based upon the doctrine of creation, and that atheism is based upon the theory of evolution. It, it, it almost stands things on their head. Paul says, no foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, many of the comments we received were very encouraging, but some were very negative, attacking me for calling out Dr. Craig and Vischer on their compromise, claiming it's unloving to publicly dispute their teaching and claims. He did not so much publicly dispute my teaching and claims as attack my personal character. And that's what the people were disagreeing with him about. And I want to agree with Ken Ham that we should publicly dispute the teaching and claims of people that we think are wrong. Um, but I don't think that Ken is able to distinguish very well between attacking a person's views and attacking a person's character. It's very common today to accuse people of lying not just being mistaken, but deliberately lying. Oh, really? You don't say. So are these commenters right? Should we not speak out when we see professing believers teaching doctrine that is opposed to Scripture? No. Doctrine matters. What we believe about the Word of God matters. What we believe about Genesis, the foundation of all our major Christian doctrine, matters. And I want to say a healthy amen to that, I completely agree with Ken Ham that when we see doctoral aberrations, we need to identify them, refute them, and correct them as best we can. And should we judge what other Christian leaders believe? Yes, we should always judge what we or others believe against Scripture. And yes, we can and should judge. And I would applaud that and second that. We must never allow doctrinal error or theological compromise to go unchallenged because of our affection or respect for the person who is in error. We need to identify, to refute, and to correct as best we can those errors uh, that are committed regardless of who commits them. Suppose we came to believe that Genesis actually teaches that there is a solid firmament 
over the earth like an inverted bowl and the stars are engraved on this solid surface. If we really came to think Genesis taught that, it seems to me we would have to revise our doctrine of inspiration. It would be futile to reject modern science and say, well, there really is such a solid surface up there and science is all wrong. It's somehow the astronauts going to the moon got through it, and uh, it, it, but it's really there. We would have to say, no, uh, what Genesis is doing is that it's expressing theological truths in obsolete uh, ancient scientific terms that don't need to be uh, taken as part of the, the doctrinal content of Scripture. And when I look at the question scientifically, I think that the similarities that human beings exhibit genetically to chimpanzees, particularly broken genes that we and chimpanzees both seem to have inherited from a last common ancestors that, that has no function anymore, suggests that we do share an evolutionary origin with human beings. I believe Dr. Craig is referring to endogenous retrovirus insertions. I too found that particular line of evidence to be incredibly convincing. Along with human chromosome 2 fusion, it was the thing that shocked me into the reality that evolution with common descent is true. If you want to learn more about that, I have a handy video on the topic called Endogenous Retrovirus Insertions. Handy. And that God used a pre-existing hominin who was non-human and merely animal, not in the image of God, as the stuff, as it were, out of which then he created the first human beings. And this probably involved some sort of regulatory genetic mutation induced by God in these hominins, and the creation and infusion of a rational soul into them to make them truly human. So there would be both biological and spiritual renovations required in order to have a genuine human being. And I think the difference between me and Ken is that I don't think Scripture compels you to close the door on evolutionary theory. Um, I think that's a scientific question, not a scriptural or theological question. Look directly at the text itself and to see what is the text saying? How did these ancient authors understand these texts? Uh, and how did their audience at that time understand them? And that's where I argue that there are lots of clues in the text that this was not meant to be taken as a kind of literalistic uh, historical account. We love the Creator, His Word, and His Church, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, too much to allow believers to unknowingly or knowingly compromise God's Word. So we will follow the admonitions in Scripture to call out false teaching, even when it is taught by someone who appears to be a genuine believer. I'm pretty hard on some of my Christian uh, colleagues. I say there are all sorts of fanciful interpretations of Genesis that have been motivated by the attempt to make it compatible with modern science. The idea that the young earth creationist might be right in his interpretation is so unthinkable that these exegetes do backflips to come up with interpretations of the text. Craig was interviewed on a podcast to respond to what I had stated about his compromising position on Genesis. At the end of the hour-long podcast, William Lane Craig, What is His Response?, 
Craig was asked two hypothetical questions. If you were to give time to change, be able to travel back to Jesus in Jerusalem and ask him, is evolution true or not? What do you think he would say? Oh, I feel quite certain he would say, what do you mean? <laughs> Explain it to me. I've never heard of it. And then you would have to lay out for him the theory. We must not think of the incarnation as Superman disguised as Clark Kent. Yeah. Okay. So here's another question then. Let's say we get to heaven. You ask Jesus, you know, is evolution true? Like, did you make things through a process of providentially governed common descent? What do you think he'll say? I, I'm not sure he would be committed to common descent past the Cambrian explosion. But I, I think that he would say that a great, great deal of the biological uh, life forms that we observe today are related by common descent. The reason I included this transcript of Craig's answers is because he does impact a lot of people with what he teaches. And I would challenge every Christian to check what this Christian leader says concerning Christ with what the Bible says about Jesus, including while he was here on earth before his death and resurrection. And that's where the interest in this podcast really lies, not in the debate between young earth and old earth creationism, but it's a debate about the incarnation of Jesus and the two natures of Christ. Ham is convinced that I deny Jesus' omniscience. And that would imply, if omniscience is an essential property of God, as I believe, that therefore I deny the deity of Christ. And so this would indeed be an extremely serious theological error if I were to deny that Jesus is or was omniscient. My response was that I think he would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of that theory. Explain it to me. And you would have a conversation. Well, Ham took that to be a denial of divine omniscience, uh, and thereby, for by implication, I think, of Christ's deity. Ken Ham has an extremely naive view of the Incarnation, one that is not at all orthodox. For example, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. I mean, we would all agree, as I say, that Jesus is omniscient, being the second person of the Trinity. But the question is, did he exhibit all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in his human nature during his state of humiliation? And Colossians doesn't speak to that. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Luke chapter 5, verse 22. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Luke chapter 6, verse 8. Yes, if you take these uh, in a very strong sense, it would attribute a sort of clairvoyant knowledge to Jesus on occasion. But it's a huge extrapolation from that um, to say that Jesus was therefore omniscient during his state of humiliation and knew all things. That is explicitly contradicted by Scripture when it says that he increased in knowledge and wisdom and says that he did not know the date of his second coming, even if on occasion he exhibited clairvoyant knowledge of others' thoughts. I personally believe that Craig's compromise of Genesis with evolutionary ideas undermines the authority of God's word and has negatively impacted many people in the church. The church fathers 
like Oregon and Augustine held to non-literalistic interpretations of Genesis 1 1,500 years before Darwin, and that therefore a non-literalistic interpretation in no way uh, represents or must represent a retreat in the face of modern evolutionary science. And that's the lesson I think that our uh, viewers need to take away from this, is uh, that we need to have a genuine and serious doctrine of the Incarnation, which takes seriously Jesus' full human nature. And that's the end of their conversation so far. This is a tough one for me. I think that William Lane Craig is more correct about the science, and that Ken Ham is more correct about the theology. That the man, Jesus of Nazareth, probably would have contended that Genesis was literal. But that's the kind of thinking that makes a person doubt Jesus. What's your take on all this? Who's right? Who's wrong? Let me know in the comments. And until next time, later.